somehow, now, for some reason, due to someone somewhere, it's been decided to bring some significant criminal financial activities and related sexual abuse hush money charges against the same Dennis Hastert. That minus the real implicating facts. And all that with unquestioning assistance from the U.S. media. You're listening to episode 725 of Unwelcome Guests, an ongoing deep state cover-up. I'm Robin Upton, and we've just heard a quick summary from Sibel Edmonds, who is going to be providing the majority of the material for this episode. Not going out on a limb there as to who is pulling the strings, but I think absolutely correct to be circumspect, but reflecting that the hand of the deep state is clearly at work, and of all commentators from the alternative, the independent media, Sibel Edmonds is uniquely qualified to speak with authority, having seen a large number of documents. She's mindful of the fact that there are two judgments of state secrets privilege. Twice she has been told there are things about which she must not speak, but there are things which she can speak, which will lead the informed listener to do their own homework and discover what it is that the nation-state is so afraid that she will reveal. Thanks to Olivier for pointing me in this direction. We're going to conclude with another part from our ongoing adaption of Alan Frankovich's video on Gladio. But first, I've got four different podcasts for you from The Boiling Frog's Post. This is Sibel Edmund's commentary on the Dennis Hastert case as the media is framing it. Of course, we know the implications are far wider and there's a larger network of deep state functionaries embedded within the public state apparatus. Sibel Edmonds, I think, does an excellent job of painting a bigger picture. Perhaps it's just because I've listened to it several times that it makes a pretty coherent, larger picture. For me, it's a picture of a deep state operation to cover up earlier crimes. Sibel Edmonds has proved a thorn in the side of the deep state and she has been able to keep going long, loud and clear to broadcast and while she's been more or less ignored by the commercially controlled media she's reached a lot of people through her alternative efforts including the Boiling Frogs post which I think normally charges for access to its material but due to the importance of this case it's decided to open source the material on the Dennis Hastert case. So many thanks to Sibel Edmonds for that far-sighted decision and I hope it leads more people to the Boiling Frogs post. If you would like some more of their material you can go to boilingfrogspost.com. So if you find it leaving you slightly puzzled you could try re-listening. You could also try reading about some of these people. Now you might be thinking Wikipedia but remember if something hasn't appeared in the commercially controlled media, if it's not on CNN or MSNBC, then 
Wikipedia says, well, this isn't really very newsworthy, so it doesn't really belong here. If you see a problem with that, then you might want to head over to Wikispooks, an encyclopedia of the deep state, which, of course, doesn't take it as read that inclusion on commercially controlled media is an indication of reliability, or that if it's not there, then it's not important. Now, whilst Wikipedia is large compendious, Wikispooks is small, very focused on the deep state, uh, not as complete as I'd love it to be. There's a small team of us who just keep working away on that. If you think you'd like to help this information receive a wider audience, then I'd encourage you to head over to Wikispooks, not just as a reader, but an editor. Now, let's begin the first of these four commentaries. This is from the 17th of September, 2015. The U.S. media's deafening silence on this significant case is not caused by lack of information, but by Washington's calculated design. The public scandal broke in late May 2015. I was overseas with very limited reach during the fairly intense but shallow coverage of the case. I managed to record and publish a very brief podcast segment titled Dennis Hastert, What Remains Beneath on June 12, 2015. I left the rest to the U.S. media, believing, or let's say cautiously hoping, that the recent revelations would lead to real revelations. Did I only passively wait? No. I had hours of conversations with less than a handful of mainstream media reporters in early to mid-June 2015. Of course, I certainly knew that calls and inquiries coming from the U.S. mainstream media were probably prompted by the U.S. government to get a sense a feel for my position, whether or not I was going to jump in the middle of their limited and staged play. So I did not resort to spontaneity. I did not pour out raw information while knowing with certainty that I was being tested while being recorded. No, instead, I gave them well-calculated and strategically crafted information that would easily lead them to the real facts. Of course, as I expected, every single piece of information I gave the U.S. mainstream media reporters was sealed, locked away, and buried. On the other hand, I succeeded in keeping the real Washington bosses guessing, and I believe they are still guessing. Now I'm back. I have had a chance to think and design a path to shed light on obscure facts surrounding Dennis Hastert, his case, his chief of staff and loyal partner in crime, Scott Palmer, their illegal and immoral conduct that took place between 1997 and 2002, other high-profile participants and the parties that were not only fully aware of these activities, but were also documenting and recording them, and the highest-level beneficiaries that have much to lose if real trials were to take place. If you haven't already, please listen to my short podcast segment for needed background. I will have the link and others at the end of this podcast post for those of you who are not familiar with my case, 
or unaware of my past revelations on Dennis Hastert dating back to 2005. Reading, listening to, and understanding the historical facts, established facts, and context is a prerequisite to comprehending this coming series. For this episode, I'm going to explain why the case is highly likely to be dropped or lost on purpose. I will provide you with the broad picture of the real case, talk about those with much at stake if the case were to proceed as a real case, and various methods that could be implemented to limit and or end the case. Get it thrown out, aka dropping the charges. Let's begin. On May 29, 2015, the U.S. media published their sensational headlines on Dennis Hastert's indictment by a federal grand jury. Quote, Dennis Hastert, the longest-serving Republican speaker in the history of the United States House, was indicted Thursday by a federal grand jury on charges that he violated banking laws in a bid to pay $3.5 million to an unnamed person to cover up past misconduct. Hastert, who's been a high-paid lobbyist in Washington since his 2007 retirement from Congress, schemed to mask more than $950,000 in withdrawals from various accounts in violation of federal banking laws that required the disclosure of large cash transactions, according to a seven-page indictment delivered by a grand jury in Chicago. The indictment did not spell out the exact nature of prior misconduct by Hastert, but it noted that before entering state and federal politics in 1981, Hastert served for more than a decade as a teacher and wrestling coach at Yorkville High School in Illinois. In 2010, confronted about this prior misconduct, the former speaker agreed to pay $3.5 million to the person to compensate for and conceal his prior misconduct against individual A, prosecutors alleged. That person, whose identity was shielded by prosecutors, has known Hastert most of his or her life, growing up in Yorkville, the city next to Hastert's hometown of Plano, in the suburbs of West Chicago. Prosecutors said the actions occurred years earlier than the 2010 meeting that sparked the payments. Okay. A little bit later, more details emerged. Uh, One of them was the fact that the misconduct was later revealed to be an allegation that Hastert, a former wrestling coach and a high school teacher, had sexually molested a student in Illinois decades ago. So what happened next? Other than the short-lived amplified sensation surrounding the case, giving the podium to dozens of politicians and so-called experts eager for publicity, and a spotlight time, that was it. The story, as grand and significant as it was, died down, and died fairly quickly. In fact, the only second page worthy update came out on September 11, 2015. This is about five, six days ago. Judge Grant's extension for Dennis Hastert's pretrial motions. Federal prosecutors joined the attorney for former U.S. House Speaker Dennis Hastert in asking for a delay in his trial on banking charges, 
and his request was granted. Now ask yourself, a former Speaker of the House with several decades in Washington politics, with several major past scandals, with millions of dollars gained during his political tenure as a representative, with many more millions gained since leaving Congress in 2007, a foreign lobbyist, a foreign agent, a man with intimate connections to other high-profile criminal power players, a chronic sexual abuser. Yet, other than the initial two, three-week-long shallow sensational coverage, there has been nothing. There have been no significant exposés. No additional figures have been named. And that begs the urgent question, why? Why no coverage of the man who managed not only Hester's criminal financial activities, including bribery, foreign bribery, money laundering, but also his sexual misconduct, including sexual abuse of minors in and outside the United States, minors offered to him and exploited, by foreign entities, not only foreign government lobbies, but also foreign organized crime networks. The man I'm referring to is Scott Palmer. Palmer was Haster's chief of staff from Haster's initial election to the United States House in 1986 until the former speaker's retirement in 2007. Of course, the relationship continued after that as well. He also worked on Hester's campaign staff since Hester's first run for the Illinois House of Representatives in 1980. He was Hester's roommate in Washington, D.C. So, in October 2006, during the Mark Foley scandal, uh, Scott Palmer's name became a bit public. Palmer publicly denied the assertion by Kirk Fordham, one-time chief of staff for former U.S. Representative Mark Foley, that Fordham had told Palmer about Foley's inappropriate contacts with mail pages in 2003 or earlier and had asked Palmer to intervene. Palmer released a statement that day that read, What Kirk Fordham said did not happen. He testified under oath in front of the House Ethics Committee on October 23, 2006, regarding his knowledge of the Mark Foley scandal. Why no coverage of the multi-page expose by Vanity Fair magazine on Hastert in September 2005? Why no coverage of an expose with supporting testimonies from FBI DOJ witnesses regarding Dennis Haster's illegal and treasonous activities, including money laundering and foreign bribery. Why no coverage of my own under oath and on-record testimony on Haster's illegal and immoral activities in 2010, all of which were documented and recorded not only by the FBI, but also the CIA and foreign organizations in Chicago? The answer is simple. The U.S. media is in partnership with the U.S. government and the U.S. deep state. The censored information would not only expose Dennis Hastert, but also others. So, who has something to lose in this case? Let's start with the obvious ones, okay? 
those close to Hastert who not only aided but actively participated in these activities have a lot to lose. In this case, as documented and uh, with the records obtained by the FBI counterintelligence units between 1997 and 2002, Hastert's chief of staff, sexual partner, criminal partner and organizer, Scott Palmer. Scott Palmer would face indictment and imprisonment. Further, other former and current elected officials who participated in the same illegal financial activities and or illegal sexual activities with Dennis Hastert. To name a few from established FBI records, Representative Bob Livingston, Representative Roy Blond, Representative Dan Burton, Representative Tom Lantis, Representative Chan Chakovsky and her husband Bob Creamer from Chicago. But there is more. FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Justice Department the, and the FBI have more than one stake in this case, that is, if it were to become a real case. One, in 1996 and 1997, the FBI pursued Dennis Hastert and gathered intelligence and evidence on him by violating FISA law. They used FISA court warrants issued for monitoring foreign targets to gather intelligence and criminal evidence on U.S. persons, including Dennis Hastert. Two, in 1999, under Clinton administration, the FBI DOJ transferred the case, this includes Haster's case, from counterintelligence to criminal unit. But unfortunately, the initial evidence still came from the violation of FISA, so it was a sticky case for them. Three, in late 2001, early 2002, the State Department, CIA, with a specific approval from the Bush administration, shut down the investigation, that includes Hastert, and did not take any action on Dennis Hastert and others involved in criminal and illegal activities, despite having more than sufficient evidence. These activities also included sexual crimes. I worked on these files. I was in the FBI's Washington's field office when the order came from the State Department slash CIA and the FBI Justice Department shut down the investigations, the operation. Next, the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA. This CIA, in violation of its statutory mission, was conducting surveillance of Dennis Hastert and other high-profile elected and appointed officials. Their operation included video surveillance in locations such as Hastert's secondary townhouse office in Chicago. I say townhouse office because he used part of the house, the townhouse, as his second office in Illinois, but he also used the bedrooms upstairs uh, to reside and to, to sleep and spend most evenings there. They also uh, surveilled uh, and recorded Hastert's townhouse in Washington, D.C. Who else? Foreign agents of special status allies. A partnership network of foreign agents from Turkey and Israel not only provided Dennis Hastert, 
and others with illegal monetary bribes, channels to launder illegal bribes, sexual favors as bribes, but they also conducted their own surveillance, obtained visual audio written documents that were used for the purpose of blackmail. Further, these foreign operators were not limited to foreign governmental and or lobby entities. A certain foreign clandestine criminal group operating under the CIA based in Chicago was also involved. Now, what would happen if there came a real trial with all the evidence in Haster's case? A trial that even by default would expose high-profile U.S. officials, CIA domestic operations targeting U.S. persons, FBI's record not only on Hastert but also on other high-profile U.S. officials obtained in violation of FISA laws back in the 90s, illegal operations conducted by foreign operatives of U.S. allied countries on U.S. soil. What would happen? Can you imagine that? Now, what happens if Hastert and his legal team fully aware of the above consequences, demand access to the above evidence and documents for the purpose of his defense to be used in criminal court? Well, based on my first-hand experience, I'll answer that question with 100% certainty. If that were to happen, the FBI and or the CIA and or the State Department and or the White House would claim classification and national security, maybe even a state secrets privilege. And with that, the defense, that is Hastert and his legal team, would ask the court to dismiss, to dismiss the case in its entirety, because they'd argue that the defendant is entitled to all evidence that may exonerate him, and if the government withholds this evidence, then the court has no choice but to dismiss the entire case. So that's one highly likely scenario, but not the only possible scenario. Since the case involves Chicago, Illinois, and its corrupt politics and key figures, corrupt key figures, Haster's defense team may just get the case settled, either thrown out or severely modified to their advantage, by threatening to use and publicize incriminatory evidence against the state and its high-level officials. With that pressure, the prosecutors, under pressure, would either put on a mock show as a trial or go for dismissal. Think about it. Hastert is criminal. He is a predator, corrupt, deviant, greedy, but he ain't stupid. How much do you think he'd have on key Chicago figures, figures from Illinois, from Rom Emanuel to Obama, to Bob Creamer and Jan Tchaikovsky? And let's not forget the heavyweight of foreign lobby firms and their lobbyists. They too would throw in their weight to either get the case limited or simply dismissed to protect their high-paying foreign clients, be it uh, governmental, business, or criminal entities. 
Finally, let's make a full circle and go back to our mainstream media and its kid glove treatment of the Dennis Hastert case. Considering the players with major stakes in the case who happen to be directing the media landscape in this country, are you surprised? Now, three days later, Sibyl Edmonds produced the following. The press release disseminated in March 2007 by NSWBC, National Security Whistleblowers Coalition, an organization I started in 2004 with over 150 former and current intelligence and law enforcement veterans. The title headline of our press release, Two FBI Whistleblowers Confirm Illegal Wiretapping of Government Officials and Misuse of FISA, March 2007. The National Security Whistleblowers Coalition has obtained a copy of an official complaint filed by veteran FBI Special Agent Gilbert Graham with the Department of Justice Office of the Inspector General, DOJ-OIG. Graham's protected disclosures report the violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, in conducting electronic surveillance of high-profile U.S. public officials. Before his retirement in 2002, Gilbert Graham worked for the FBI's Washington Field Office, Squad NS-24. One of the main areas of Mr. Graham's counterintelligence investigations involved espionage activities by Turkish officials and agents in the United States. On April 2, 2002, Graham filed with the DOJ OIG a classified protected disclosure, which provided a detailed account of FISA violations involving misuse of FISA warrants to engage in domestic surveillance. In his unclassified report, Graham states, it is the complainant's reasonable belief that the request for ELSER, electronic surveillance, coverage, was a subterfuge to collect evidentiary information concerning public corruption matters. Graham blew the whistle on this illegal behavior operation, but the actions were covered up by the Department of Justice and the Attorney General's office. The report filed by Graham bolsters another FBI whistleblower's case that became public several months after Graham's official filing with the Justice Department in 2002. Sabal Edmonds, former FBI language specialist, also worked for the FBI Washington field office, and her assignments included the translations of Turkish counterintelligence documents and audio tapes, some of which were part of espionage investigations led by Agent Graham. After she filed her complaint with the IG and Congress, she was retaliated against by the FBI and ultimately fired in March 2002. Court proceedings in Edmund's case were blocked by the assertion of state secrets privilege by then Attorney General John Ashcroft, and Congress was gagged and prevented from investigating her case through retroactive reclassification of documents by DOJ. Edmund's complaints included allegations of illegal activities by foreign organizations and their agents in the United States, 
and the involvement of certain elected and appointed U.S. officials in Congress, Department of State, and Pentagon. In its September 2005 issue, Vanity Fair ran a comprehensive piece on Edmund's case by reporter David Rose, in which several former and current Congressional and Justice Department officials identified former House Speaker Dennis Hastert as being involved in illegal activities with the Turkish organizations and personnel targeted in FBI investigations. In addition, Rose reported, much of what Edmonds reportedly heard seemed to concern not only espionage, but criminal activity. Another former veteran FBI counterintelligence and espionage specialist at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., also filed similar reports with DOJ, IG, and several congressional offices regarding violations of FISA implementation and the covering up of several espionage cases involving FBI language specialists and public corruption cases by the Bureau. The cases reported by this whistleblower corroborate those reported by Agent Graham and Sibel Edmonds. In an interview with NSWBC investigators, the former FBI specialists who wish to remain anonymous stated, you are looking at covering up massive public corruption cases. To top that off, you have major violations of FISA by the FBI's Washington field office and headquarters targeting these cases. Everyone involved has motive to cover up these reports and prevent investigation and public disclosure. No wonder they invoke the state secrets privilege case in Edmund's case. I will post the link to the original press release and Agent Graham's redacted report signed and filed with DOJ's Inspector General's office. So, you have two FBI insiders blowing the whistle on the same operations, and another veteran FBI agent doing the same thing but anonymously. One is a decorated veteran agent, Gilbert Graham, with 25-plus years in FBI's counterintelligence unit, one is me, a linguist analyst who worked on the same counterintelligence operations, and another, a senior special agent from the same division who had not retired at the time of the release. That's the press release. These cases were filed individually, totally separate from each other. All three cases resulted in classification, redaction, gag orders, invocation of state secrets privilege, and of course, severe retaliation. Now, what were these illegal operations? When did they occur? By whose directive or order? Who were they targeting? Why? Ultimately, what happened to those operations? How does all this relate to the Dennis Hastert case? What is at stake as far as the FBI and DOJ go? What is at stake as far as the Clinton and Bush administrations are concerned? What do dozens of other very high-profile U.S. officials have to worry about? Rather than bombarding you with too much information, I'm going to answer the first category of these questions for this episode. I will leave the others for following episodes, okay? 
All right, let's begin. The 1996 Bill Clinton classified order to DOJ and FBI to begin COINTELPRO 2. In mid-1990s, still bogged down with the Paula Jones scandal, a case that refused to quickly go away, while preparing for another sexual scandal, the Monica Lewinsky case, Bill Clinton and his top White House team put together a political retaliation plan meant to retaliate against and then neutralize the Republican Party and key elected Republican officials. The main objective of the plan was to, one, collect major dirt on key Republican officials. Two, use the information to blackmail those Republicans as a means to prevent impeachment. Three, strategically release the cases of those who did not back down by blackmail if the impeachment process were to proceed. It was a good plan, very aggressive. However, this was not a plan that could be directly executed by the White House. They needed the Justice Department and the FBI, which not only had existing information on the target Republicans, but the ability to quickly gather more usable dirt. After several meetings and consultation sessions, the White House had what they needed, including cover and justification, with Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI's director then, Louis Free, both their own hand-picked and appointed people. One of the main divisions in the FBI, with full access and capacity to collect the needed dirt, was the FBI's counterintelligence unit that operated under FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So, with a special covert waiver from the White House, the FBI's counterintelligence unit was directed to conduct a special surveillance program and given a set of operation and targets that went with that. Of course, the lower-level agents, those who actually performed the operations, were told neither the reason nor the purpose. It was just that all of a sudden, their operational scope, together with the means and certain abilities, was suddenly expanded. But not all agents are equally blind or stupid. Based on hushed whispers, floating rumors, and what was taking place with Bill Clinton's sexual scandals, some were able to add two and two and arrive at a solid, unquestionable four. For their new operation, certain previously strict FISA rules were relaxed, while others were totally overridden, eliminated. Now let's go back and revisit the press release and the report by veteran special agent Gilbert Graham, since he was one of those non-blind thinking agents. Graham's protected disclosures report the violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, in conducting electronic surveillance of high-profile U.S. public officials. 
Graham filed with IG a classified protected disclosure, which provided a detailed account of FISA violations involving misuse of FISA warrants to engage in domestic surveillance. In his unclassified report, Graham states, it's the complainant's reasonable belief that the request for ELSER coverage was a subterfuge to collect evidentiary information concerning public corruption matters. Okay, everyone, does it make more sense now? Because same applies to my case. Edmund's complaints included allegations of illegal activities by foreign organizations and their agents in the United States and the involvement of certain elected and appointed U.S. officials. Now, back to the results and the Clinton administration. Their strategy, the new covert Pro, proved to be highly successful. Let me give you a few examples. In 1998, the Speaker of the House, Republican Bob Livingston, resigned due to his exposed sex scandals. Let me read from an article published by Chicago Tribune in December 1998. On the eve of the House debate to impeach President Clinton for lying about sex with Monica Lewinsky, House Speaker-elect Bob Livingston told his Republican colleagues Thursday night that he had strayed from his marriage and had adulterous affairs. Guess what? He was not the only Republican targeted by the FBI's new Pro, blackmailed, and later strategically outed by never-identified insiders tipping off the media. I'll continue to read. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Henry Hyde, Republican, Representative Helen Chenoweth, Republican, and Republican Dan Burton acknowledged affairs in the wake of the Lewinsky investigations. Hyde admitted to an affair 30 years ago, and Burton acknowledged having a child out of wedlock. And here comes the most significant quote from CNN on December 21, 1998. Early Saturday morning, before the impeachment vote, House Speaker-designate Bob Livingston called Majority Whip Tom DeLay with a piece of news. I'm resigning. When he made the same announcement on the House floor, it was his second bombshell in three days. The first was his forced confession, the media were about to out him, that I have on occasion strayed from my marriage. Livingston gave no details, which left hustler publisher Larry Flint to spread around whatever he pleased. With no sign of proof, Flint claimed four women had told his staff about past liaisons with Livingston. Flint said he has a tape of Livingston engaging in raunchy phone sex. Do you know where those phone records came from? Because I listened to those. That's right. The information, the recorded sexual acts, all came from the FBI's counterintelligence unit in Washington, D.C. Guess what? 
Are you familiar with my State Secrets Privilege Gallery released in 2008? Let's just say Bob Livingston and Dan Burton are both in that gallery. They have been there since 2008. Consistency and sticking to the fact is good, isn't it? In fact, Bob Livingston, as soon as he resigned, registered with the Department of Justice as a foreign agent and lobbyist for Turkey. Of course, his top client was Turkey. Clinton has much to thank the FBI's counterintelligence unit on Turkey. Now, let me read a few quotes on Dan Burton and his Turkish ties and interests published by the American Prospect in December 2001, six months before my case became public. Burton also took thousands of dollars in legal contributions from people with business interests in Turkey. Afterwards, he made a statement on the floor of the House of Representatives he had cribbed from a Turkish government official. The statement defended Turkey against well-documented charges that its government committed serious human rights violations against the Kurds. In 1996, Burton made another floor statement that almost exactly echoed materials that Turkey's lobbying firm gave to members of Congress, according to the Los Angeles Times. I believe with my 13-year-old on-record case, veteran agent Gilbert Graham's report, the press release, and all the examples and media quotes cited, you're starting to grasp what I'm talking about here. We are not looking at some circumstantial evidence collected here and there. I'm providing you with rock-solid facts supported by reports, articles, under oath testimonies, and much, much more. Time to make a full circle and go back to the case of Dennis Hastert. Dennis Hastert, who became the Speaker of the House after Bob Livingston's resignation. I have to say that of all the FBI's new Pro targets, he, Dennis Hastert, had the thickest file. I would say the dirt on him would not be matched even if you were to put together all the dirt from all the other dirty targets. However, the incredible amount of criminal, corruption, and sexual scandals gathered on Hastert by DOJ FBI between 1996 and 2002 was never used other than for blackmail. They never had to release those. Did the Clinton administration blackmail Hastert with what they had during the initial stage around 1997-1998? You bet. Did he bow? Obviously. So they let him continue. They protected him. In fact, they gave him such a level of immunity and such an untouchable status that he went on breezing through several scanders during his tenure. Dennis Hastert's untouchable status, first granted to him by Clinton and later continued by the Bush administration, made him so bold that after the expose by the Vanity Fair article, he continued his tenure in Congress for another two years, while engaged in all those criminal sexual corrupt activities. 
And as soon as he left Congress in 2007, he formally registered himself as a foreign agent for Turkey and became a lobbyist with several million dollars a year. Interestingly, his protected status was not only granted and observed by the government, his status applied to the U.S. media as well. Can you imagine? In 2005, Vanity Fair published an explosive seven-page article with facts supported not only by me, but also by several other government insiders and congressional officials. Yet, not a single U.S. mainstream media outlet published a single word, not a single word on this case, not a single word. Now, 20 years later, somehow, for some reason, due to someone, somewhere, it's been decided to bring some significant criminal financial activities and sexual abuse charges against the same Dennis Hastert. What would happen if the case were to proceed, if the case were to be treated as a real case, if the case put on the stand real witnesses, if the case admitted all real documents and evidence, what would happen? Clinton and his counsel and several advisors during his tenure would be exposed. The FBI and its new Cointelpro operations re-sanctioned in 1996 and its violations of law, including FISA, would be exposed. Janet Reno's and Louis Free's roles would be exposed. Other U.S. officials who have been successfully blackmailed and kept in line, together with all their criminal and sexual violations, would be outed. Previously quashed and gagged whistleblower cases, such as mine and Graham's and several others, would see the light of day. The American public, at least many of them, would wake up and admit to the realities governing their government and so-called representatives. As John Lennon said, imagine. But can you really imagine that? I can't. This is why I expect the case to be dropped or on purpose to be fought to lose. Now we fast forward to September the 30th. I'll be covering the three-year period between 1999 and 2002 when the executive branch's perfect plan became complicated by inadvertently collected unwanted information, loss of control over lower FBI agents leading multiple and overlapping operations, and the change of administration in January 2001. This was the period when their good plan proved to be far from a perfect plan. During this period, the executive branch's select Cointelpro 2 bucket turned into a big can of worms, a can that was filled with not only dirty Republican representatives, but equally dirty Democrats. A can that contained not only elected officials, but several high-profile appointed figures, some of whom became major visible players in the new administration. That would be the Bush administration. 
think of a fisherman who throws his net into a wide open sea. He may be using a special net geared towards a specific species of fish. He may be using special bait known to attract a particular fish. However, no matter how well planned or how highly specialized, he's not going to know the exact contents of his net until he actually reels it out of the water, goes through its contents, and then see exactly what he has caught. Well, that's exactly what happened with the specific Cointel Pro operation that began as a limited operation targeting specific entities for a very specific purpose to counter and neutralize a likely impeachment process. Multiple FBI counterintelligence units were sucking in data from multiple operations. There were many useful nuggets to be found in counterintelligence operations targeting Israel-related entities and organizations. There were many jewels to pick from raw intelligence gathered from Turkey and Turkish lobby-related targets. There were goodies within several espionage cases that existed prior to the 1996 COINTELPRO directive. Most importantly, there were way too many overlaps. Before I go further, let me pause and give you a broad explanation on what I mean by sucking data. Of course, we are talking about wiretaps, but that's only one of several means. There was physical surveillance, video surveillance, use of informants from other related operations, and additional creative methods that bypassed existing laws and regulations. What happens when you gather all this data from multiple operations uh, via various intelligence gathering methods and then end up with way too much explosive information implicating way too many people. Let me clarify it further. What happens when you end up with significant information and dirt on not only your targets, but also on their friends and partners and associates that happen to be your boss's friends and allies? Well, that was exactly what took place. And neither the White House nor the top bosses in DOJ and FBI had in place a mechanism that enabled them to sanitize the illegally gathered information. Meaning, yes, they got plenty of dirt to use against their adversaries in Congress, but they also got tons of information on other key figures. They could use, which they did, select juicy nuggets for their purposes. On the other hand, they had no mechanism in place that automatically eliminated, uh, destroyed the other information. And they had no possible way to hide this other information from the frontline lower level agents who did the actual work. What were they going to do? somehow delete and destroy unwanted and undesirable information from the other targets and induce the agents to have selective amnesia? Of course, the new COINTELPRO collected a tremendous amount of dirt on some key elected Republicans. 
On top of that list was Dennis Hastert with criminal activities ranging from financial fraud, money laundering, and bribery to partnership with criminal networks in Chicago, treason, and sexual violation of minor males, both domestically and internationally. Other Republican figures included Dan Burton, Bob Livingston, and Roy Blunt. But wait, some select uh, Democrats ended up in the same bucket as well. They had Representative Tom Lantis with implicating data gathered from counterintelligence operations targeting Turkey and Israel. They had Representative Stephen Solers through counterintelligence operations on Israel, Turkey, and India. They had Congresswoman Jan Tchaikovsky and her convicted husband, Robert Creamer, through counterintelligence operations involving Chicago political corruption cases, financial fraud and embezzlements, Israel and Turkey, with parallel operations conducted by the CIA involving Mullah Fethullah Gulen and his criminal network in Chicago. But wait again, do dirties operate only within the elected official circle? Of course not. The same exact operations producing a list of elected Republican and Democrat dirties also produced the list of high-profile appointed career bureaucrats. The FBI's counterintelligence and counterespionage operations compiled much implicating data, implicating as in criminal, on individuals such as Richard Pearl, Douglas Feigt, Eric Edelman, Mark Grossman, Graham Fuller, David Makovsky, and Alan Makovsky, among others. You're looking at a group of criminally implicated individuals who have been in and out of various high-level executive positions regardless of their political affiliation or partisan labels. Maybe it is time to go back and revisit Sibel Edmonds' State Secrets Gallery, which was released in 2008. Take a look at the list and take the time to look into the background of those occupying the gallery. I will not take up time, yours and mine, with the lengthy criminal careers of these individuals. I will leave that up to you. But I'm going to highlight a few since much has been written and said about them by me and a very few others outside the mainstream media. At the end of this post, you will be provided with links to several articles, videos, and podcast coverage of these highlighted targets with thick, very thick FBI dossiers. The new Pro also made use of information gathered on appointed federal judges during their mandatory background checks and clearance, which is conducted by, of course, Department of Justice and the FBI. Now, back to late 1999. At the stage where we had a mixed bucket of 30s, and FBI counterintelligence agents, analysts, and linguists with full knowledge of and supporting documentation on dozens of U.S. officials, elected and appointed, who were criminally uh, implicated. This led to bottom-up pressure within the FBI to transfer these cases, those filled with glaring criminal evidence, 
to the FBI's Espionage and Criminal Divisions and to seek prosecutions. Considering the level of criminal activities, the level of outrage among some agents was totally understandable. So how did the powers within Janet Reno's Justice Department and Louis Free's FBI deal with this outrage and pressure? Well, they could not cherry-pick and move forward with criminal prosecutions. Doing so would have made the Watergate scandal look lame. These criminal cases implicated very high-level public figures from both parties, so it was out of question. But they also needed to pacify the involved agents and eliminate the pressure. Thus, they came up with a legally justifiable plan of action. And what was that? The Clinton administration played the fruit of the poisonous tree legal card. Fruit of the poisonous tree is a legal metaphor used to describe evidence that is obtained illegally. The logic of the terminology is that if the source, that's the tree, of the evidence or the evidence itself is tainted, then anything gained, that would be the fruit, from if anything that is gained from it would be considered tainted as well. What they did was this. They said after legally analyzing the operations, they realized that despite the directive from the White House, the use of FISA and FBI's counterintelligence units were determined to be not very legal. <laughs> Thus, they could not use the criminal evidence collected via unlawful means in domestic courts of law. That, unless the FBI could come up with implicating criminal evidence gathered through other legal means, their hands would remain tied. This was enough to pacify the majority of the bottom players within the FBI, but not all. Since the program remained operational, several dedicated and outraged FBI agents decided to take it upon themselves to find criminally implicating evidence via other means, those considered legal, those outside FISA jurisdiction. For example, while much data was gathered from various electronic surveillance methods under FISA jurisdiction for FBI counterintelligence, some wasn't. The FBI also had data related to other non-FISA criminal surveillance. They also had information gathered through informants involved in criminal, mainly financial crime, operations, which could be used legally in criminal cases against some of these high-level U.S. officials. Between late 1999 and January 2002, several counterintelligence agents from three FBI field offices, New Jersey, D.C., and Chicago, collaborated and worked hard to collect the needed evidence usable in federal criminal courts. 